you will want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. remind you that next uh, Sunday we will have the Cliffords here with us, the missionaries that we're going to begin supporting in January as they will be heading off to Africa to serve the Lord with MTW there. And they'll be here next week to sort of explain all of what God has called them to do. Encourage you to uh, come for that. We are at the end of book of 2 Timothy and uh, we will be going through Titus for the rest of the month and then going into the Advent season. But let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole uh, chapter. Paul is writing to Timothy. This is the last chapter of what is his last will and testament. These are the last things that he wants to say to Timothy, who has been his protege. Uh, And so this is, in some ways, uh, things that are very important to him. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Take a kiss I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, added Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us one more time to Paul's second letter to Timothy to learn more about the high value of your word preached and heard, about the value of your people loved and served, and about the need for endurance when they desert and disappoint us. And Lord, this is hard. Sometimes we don't want to admit that we don't listen to and obey your word as well as we should, that we don't treat people as well as we should, that we don't trust you as well as we should. And sometimes the treatment that we receive from others is so discouraging that we just want to walk away. So Lord, once again, teach us what to do, what to say, teach us what to believe and how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words to the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Now, I don't know what you expect to hear when you come on Sunday morning, um, but I'm always fascinated as one who's preached a long time and has taught preaching for a long time. I'm always interested, and so we did a little quiz, and uh, I sent out in the weekly email and asked people to answer the following question, print it out, and there were slips in the back for some of you, and we got maybe half of you uh, got answers from, and that's fine. And the question was, what do I expect of preaching? So among those of you who answered the question, uh, what do we come up with? Uh, And so uh, my faithful helpers over here at the uh, technology table um, organized them into sort of three major categories. And the first category, uh, most of you said, Explaining Scripture and Application to Life. A good answer. Want the Scripture explained and able to apply it to our lives. Scripture can't be explained if it's not preached. So if you're somewhere where they're not preaching from the Word of God... That expectation cannot be met. If you're somewhere where they're not preaching from the word of God, it can't be applied to your life. So one of the first things that everybody expects is it is actually the scripture that is going to be preached. Hopefully it will be explained. Hopefully it will be applied. But we have to start somewhere. And so we start with the scripture. If we start with anything else, we can already throw that out, which was the top answer that people wanted to hear. It's scripture explained. So, and that's a good answer. The second one was simply truth. What do I expect of preaching? Truth. We live in a culture that you have your truth and I have my truth and I get to pick whatever I want to be the truth. That's not, I think, the kind of truth you're talking about. I think you're talking about the kind of truth that Jesus says, Lord, thy word is truth. So again, if we want God's truth, the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, we have a starting place. We have to come here. We're not getting truth from out there. 
there are true things out there, and there's also false things out there. Um, but that's not what we're looking for. We do not subscribe to your truth and my truth. We only subscribe to God's truth. And it's truth that applies to everybody, everywhere, all the time. Um, and it's not dependent on whether we actually like it or not. Or we wish it said something else. Or, you know, I don't like that verse. I like this other verse. Um, truth. That's a hard one. Because people define it differently these days. The third one is to be encouraged and convicted. Okay, sometimes it's hard to do both of those. Although I think both of those usually happen, but for different people. There are some people who are very encouraged on a Sunday, and there's other people that are not, um, that are very convicted. And sometimes it happens to the same person. But God's Word operates differently in different hearts. And uh, so you know, preachers have been told for years that our job is to... Uh, Comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted, uh, the comfortable. And um, so hopefully uh, we do that. And that some of you will be encouraged and some of you will be convicted. And um, I don't always know how that's going to go or how it will go uh, for you. I'm reminded of a time when someone came up to me. It was a very emotional sermon. Those rarely happen. Um, and uh, everybody was crying, which, as you know, I actually like. Um, and they came up afterwards and were like, the Holy Spirit was really powerful today. And I was like, yes. And the Holy Spirit was also really powerful last week when you left feeling miserable because you were convicted. Of, so that was the Holy Spirit, too. They're like, yeah, no, no, that, you know, both are the Holy Spirit. You know, when you're leaving encouraged and excited and in love with the Lord, and when the Lord has brought something to your heart that you need to change your life, and you know it, still the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we want to see that happen. And then one, this was one of the last ones that we got, and then really fit into those categories, maybe a little bit into all three of them, I expect to be pointed to Christ and the gospel. And uh, I hope that we do that. Uh, one of the things, and uh, Frank can tell you, as we often when talking about the sermon, one of the questions is, how are you going to get to Jesus? When I teach preaching at RTS, one of the questions for my students how are you going to get to Jesus? They usually don't have an answer right off. We kind of have to talk our way through it till we get there. Um, but I hope that you are pointed to Christ and the gospel. Um, as we get into today's passage at the end of 2 Timothy, we're going to see preaching is important to the Apostle Paul uh, for all of those reasons, actually. A part of this, see if our answers were anything like his. And, and I think they are, although I think he goes a little bit farther. Paul has a very high view of preaching. 
After all, he not only wrote about preaching, he practiced it. He was a preacher. Luke describes Paul's preaching this way in Acts 28. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Let's just stop right there. From morning till evening. We're going to go like five minutes over today, and I don't want to hear it. Okay? We are going to get you out by lunchtime, more or less. Paul's going to supper time. Okay? So you all getting over. Um, From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul wrote about preaching and preached himself and encouraged his protege, Timothy, uh, to preach God's word. We saw that Back in 1 Timothy 4, when we were there, he said, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And he was reminding Timothy that a pastor's priority is the proclamation of God's word to God's people in the setting of corporate worship. Now, this charge is given to a preacher, and by extension to all preachers of the gospel. But don't think it lets you off the hook. I know you can easily look at it and say, you know, this was written to pastors, this is a charge to preachers, and that's true, it is. Uh, It contains an explicit exhortation from Paul to Timothy, and the applications to ministers and all those who preach and teach the gospel are obvious. But even when a passage of scripture is directed to preachers, there are practical applications for all Christians, and I want you to see some of those today as we work through the passage. I want to encourage you, this passage is just as practical and just as applicable and just as important to you as it is to those of us who preach and teach the Word of God. So let's turn to our text this morning, 1 Timothy 4. It's going to start with Paul's charge to preach well. If you have one of the outlines, that's the first blank uh, there in uh, your outline, to preach well. When Paul hears Timothy, he's basically telling Timothy, Now I'm about to give you a serious charge. And Timothy's probably thinking, thanks, Paul. What have you been doing so far? I mean, if what you've been telling me in chapter 3 is not serious, I don't know what serious is. It's not like Paul has been light and trivial in chapter 3, and now he's going to get serious in chapter 4. You can imagine the trembling that Timothy must feel when Paul is letting him know, Now I'm going to get serious. You think I was being serious when I was telling you to follow me in suffering? You think I was serious when I was telling you about how false teachers are going to get into the church and hurt people? That's just the introductory stuff. Now I'm going to get serious. And so we're going to spend a a little bit more time in these first uh, set of verses than the rest of the chapter. It's still important. But Paul wants to impress on Timothy the significance of what he's doing. And so he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul gives one primary command in this whole chapter, all these verses, and that is to preach the word. And the key word of the command is obviously preach. Now the imperative used here is a Greek word, kerikson. It comes from a kerix family of words. So kerix is a herald. And uh, kariso is the act of a herald, or the act of preaching. And kergama is the content of preaching, what the herald says. And so sometimes the emphasis is on the act of preaching, and sometimes it's on the content of preaching. And the exhortation of the Apostle Paul to preach the word depends on two things. It's going to be put into practice in an effective manner. Uh, Raymond Bailey, another professor of preaching, uh, says, how one interprets scripture and understands the vocation of proclamation is shaped by one's understanding of how, when, and to whom God has spoken. So our first assumption here is that God has spoken. We need to know how, we need to know when, we need to know uh, to whom, we need to know what, where, how, all of that. But there is an underlying assumption that when we come to the word of God, that God has spoken. Which means the authority of Scripture must be accepted first by the preacher. The exhortation to preach the word depends on the authority of Scripture being accepted by the preacher. The Bible is already relevant. We don't make it relevant. The issue is one of authority. Is the sermon preached as the authoritative word of God, and is the sermon heard as the authoritative word of God? If it's not authoritative, its relevance doesn't matter. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, says that uh, Paul was determined to carry out his ministry of preaching the word of God, and he did so in the face of the tyranny of the practical, the immediate, and the seemingly productive, because his confidence was in the word of God. And Paul himself confirms this. Colossians 1, he says, The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's his task, to make the word of God fully known. This charge to preach the word is delivered in the name and presence of God and in the light of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul has invoked this eternal, unchangeable reality, the actual presence of God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They're present. They saw Paul write the words to Timothy. They saw Timothy read him for the first time. They read Timothy's heart. This serious charge is now electrified by these realities about Christ that he gives us. As Timothy is going to see. And the first one is the judgment of Christ. He says, he, Paul makes it clear that Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Early in his ministry, Jesus warned his detractors, all the way back in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All judgment is committed to Jesus. 
Later in the same discussion, he informs them, John 5, 27, and he, God the Father, has given him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now that's one of the great titles for Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming that title for himself, that he is the awesome Son of Man from Daniel's vision. Daniel saw coming in the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. He records Daniel 7, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The awesome Son of Man came in the flesh as Jesus Christ and lived on earth as the one appointed to serve the Father and did so perfectly, and he will be the judge, not only of Timothy's service, but of everyone's service. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember something about the Redeemer. He's not only your Savior, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. You know, we confess that every time we say the Apostles' Creed. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I don't want you to ever forget that the Lord Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. And that means you. And that's meant to energize Timothy, to add voltage to this serious charge. The realization that our service will be judged by the ultimate servant of all servants, is a jolting realization. The second reality about Christ that Paul wants Timothy to know is about the appearing of Christ. He says there's approaching reality of Jesus' brilliant appearing, this epiphany as it's known, which Scripture describes as the rising of the sun, and which Paul calls in Titus 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks, and he says our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we have the judgment of Christ, the appearance of Christ, and finally the kingdom of Christ. He says, all your preaching is to be done in light of these three realities about Christ. And this reality is, is going to be followed by his kingdom. In the words of Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, which most people know not from the scriptures, but from the majestic chorus of Handel's Messiah. Paul's charge, so solemn and so uh, serious, activates Timothy's soul as it must ours. Because Jesus is also present with us. And his judgment and his appearing and his kingdom are all coming to us as well. And so after telling him to preach the word, uh, Paul ends verse 2 by reminding him to do it with complete patience and teaching. Why? I think Paul is telling Timothy, you have to come alongside your people with encouraging words. That was one of the responses, to be encouraged and convicted. You know, where you have to come alongside people. You're doing fine. You're making progress. 
That was great. That was beautiful. And in so doing, you're called to immense patience because you rarely see quick results in ministry. I've told you many times it would be foolish if I expected everyone's life to be dramatically changed by one sermon. I don't expect this sermon or any sermon to dramatically change your life overnight. Occasionally that happens. I'm usually just as surprised as anyone else. But I do expect that your life will be changed by the accumulated effect of hearing God's word preached. It's not one sermon doing the work. It's all the sermons doing the work. It's the whole counsel of God working on the whole of your life. I last preached this text to you 17 years ago. At that time, I told you, the years will fly by like fence posts on a country road. I like that. In November, I will have been ordained to preach for 15 years. Come January, I've preached at this church for 10 You and I have changed over the last 10 years. You and I will continue to change in the next 10. But God's call will never change. Jesus, your judge, savior, king, will always be present when you hear the word preached in this place. That was 17 years ago. Now, as of next Sunday, I will have been ordained to preach for 32 years. Come January 1st, I will have been preaching at this church for 28 years. But in all that time, God's call hasn't changed. Jesus is still present when you hear the word preached in this place. But we must continue to stand guard to make sure the word is preached and heard or we will slip in all too easily into the category that Paul describes of being people who will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are more itching ears within evangelicalism than any of us would like to admit. When Paul was writing to Timothy, there were problems with persecution, with false teachers, with bad theology, with people in the churches who didn't want to hear the word of God, most of all because it made them uncomfortable. And today when we read what Paul wrote to Timothy, There are problems with persecution, with false teachers, with bad theology, and with people in the churches who don't want to hear the word of God, most of all because it makes them uncomfortable. Nothing's changed. And if Paul is telling Timothy what he must do for the people of God to be a faithful minister, then you, as the people of God, must need what Paul tells Timothy he must do. In other words, if Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, in order for you to be a faithful minister, you must preach the word, that must mean that the people of God need to hear the word preached. Why? Because people still need the gospel. They still need to hear about God's grace. They need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that they're big sinners who can't earn their way to heaven. They need to hear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God has chosen to use the preaching of the word as his primary means of bringing his transforming grace into the lives of people. Paul's been giving Timothy final words of advice to get him ready for leadership in the church. These are the final words of his final letter. But we see no regret. 
we see triumph. Paul has a ministry of transforming lives, and because of that, he has no regrets at the end of his life. And he's going to leave Timothy with three pieces of good advice. By his own example, he tells Timothy and us to finish well, verses 6 to 8. To finish well. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Finishing well doesn't happen by accident. I have a book by a professor at a Christian college, and uh, he took his son on a thousand-mile backpacking trip from British Columbia to Southern California. And so before they left, he uh, researched this sort of long-distance hiking, and he discovered that 90% of those who start out uh, to hike more than 500 miles never make it, 90%. 50% never even get started. And 40% quit after they start. Only 10% ever finish a long-distance hike, which makes what the Garniers just did that much more of a triumph. And he studied the 10% who succeed, and he came to certain conclusions. And uh, said some of it involved, uh, you know, strenuous training and meticulous preparation. But there was something else. He dis- something else he discovered. They understood the biggest hurdle was mental. The real enemy lay within. Those who succeeded made two important decisions right up front. First, they decided they would finish the trip no matter what. They would finish no matter what. Second, they expected bad things to happen and decided they would not be surprised or dismayed when they did. So when the rain turned the trail into a quagmire, they didn't quit because they weren't surprised. When black clouds of mosquitoes descended on them like some Old Testament plague, they didn't quit because they weren't surprised. When they faced days of loneliness and nights of hunger, they didn't quit because they knew it would be like this. They knew the key was simply putting one uh, foot in front of the other. You take a step and hit the mud. You take another step and see a bear. You take another step and your legs cramp. You take another step and crazy people come out of the woods. Doesn't matter. You aren't surprised because you knew the crazy people would show up sooner or later. So you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and eventually your journey is finished. That's Paul's approach to the Christian life. No matter what happened, he just kept moving forward by the grace of God. One foot in front of the other, one step at a time, one day at a time. He wasn't deterred by opposition because he knew it was coming. And I think part of our problem in this day and age is way too often we're surprised by trouble and hardship. We think the Christian life ought to be easy. And it's not. And it's not supposed to be. Today is the day for endurance. The day of rest comes later. The ability to keep going enabled Paul to refuse to compromise the truth. When other people fell away, Paul preached the word. 
when the world was against him, Paul preached the word. When it would have been easy to trim his message to save his own skin, Paul doubled down and proclaimed the whole counsel of God. He didn't back down. He didn't compromise. He didn't preach what uh, people wanted to hear. He kept the faith. Henceforth, look at verse 8. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It will be guaranteed. It is laid up or stored in heaven for Paul. It will be glorious. It is the crown of righteousness, and it will be personal. Paul's going to receive this uh, reward from the Lord himself. Know how specific he is about this. It's the Lord, the righteous judge, who will reward him. In just a little while, Nero, the unrighteous earthly ruler, will have him beheaded. He is going to put his head down on this earth and open his eyes to Jesus in heaven. And on that day, the Lord himself is going to reverse Nero's earthly judgment. The chief justice of the Supreme Court of the universe will weigh in on Paul's case, and his judgment will be final, and it will be personal. Paul is not going to be awarded his crown by mail. He's not going to receive it from a committee. He will receive it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ on that day, the day that Jesus returns from heaven. And it's not just for Paul, but he says it is for everyone who loves the Lord and longs for his appearing. Preach well, finish well, but while you're doing it, don't forget to relate well. Relate well. Verses 9 to 15, and then the end, verses 19 to 22. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus to Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Then jumping to verse 19. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. That's a great name. Why don't we name our kids that anymore? Love that. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. It's not difficult to sense from these words. There's almost a tangible loneliness on the part of the Apostle Paul. He's in a dismal dungeon. He's no longer able to fulfill the things that he's exhorting Timothy to do. On top of that, he's painfully aware that people have been leaving him all over the place. Some for reasons of ministry. I mean, end of verse 10, he says, Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus till Dalmatia. Certainly that would be true. Verse 12 of Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. But the real blow came that was struck by Demas, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now we know from Colossians 4 and from the book of Philemon that Paul and Demas had been close. 
and now he's gone. And as Paul doesn't say, hey, case or sera, whatever, doesn't matter. I got a few folks left, so what? Now, there is a deep sadness in his life. It would appear that this desertion is related to Paul himself. He says, Demas has deserted me. It's personal. And in ministry, these things are hard, and these things are sad. Every time someone leaves the church, for whatever reason, good or bad, it hurts. Now, it may have been something I said. It may have been something you said. And we have seen both. And when it happens, you can sense the sadness, both yours and theirs. What was it that led Demas to do this? Was he afraid? Was it false teaching? Was it a relationship? Did he fall in love with today and lose the sense of that day? We don't know. Paul doesn't say. But he stands out as an individual who represents discouragement to the servant of God at a time when his greatest need was for encouragement. Now the desertion of Demas is matched by the loyalty of Luke. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. That's the good news and the bad news. The good news is Luke is with him. The bad news is Luke alone is with him. Where are the rest? It's just Luke, the beloved physician, as Paul refers to him in Colossians 4. Luke is loyal to the Lord Jesus. He's loyal to the servants of Jesus. He's loyal to the gospel of Jesus. In his capacity as, <coughs> excuse me, as a Christian doctor, He made a powerful contribution to the kingdom of God by way of his kindness. You need to know that kindness will live on in the hearts of men and women long after intelligence and eloquence has been forgotten. Don't be like Demas. Be like Luke. Don't desert your brothers and sisters in Christ like Demas did. Yes, some days they will probably deserve it. They are going to say something mean. They are going to do something dumb. They are going to hurt you. Don't be surprised when crazy shows up. They disappointed Paul, and they're going to disappoint you and me as well. And we can be real specific about that. People in this church will disappoint you. Sometimes it will be the people you least expect the people you think you can count on. People, these people, will be the source of great joy and great anguish. The biggest source of pain you experience in the church is almost always relational pain. And when those days hit, be loyal like Luke. Be loyal to the word of God. Be loyal to the people of God. And yes, it's hard. And sometimes people won't be loyal to you in return. And they may desert you. And if you haven't experienced that yet, you probably will. And knowing it ahead of time isn't going to make it any easier. So what will? When people refuse to relate to you well, then you have to learn how to trust well. Verses 16 to 18, how to trust well. In his book, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, John Piper reflects on how Paul loved people. He says, we in the modern West, and I mean the last 300 years or so, have a love affair with the strong, independent, self-sufficient, self-assertive hero 
who accomplishes great feats against all odds with little help from others. But as a whole, it is not the kind of life that Paul extolled or encouraged or modeled. In Paul's entire ministry, he always traveled and ministered with others. I love that. He was never alone by choice. Even when he'd been hurt, he kept pouring himself out. He didn't become jaded. He didn't become cynical. He just kept serving. He just kept loving. And now Paul's in prison in Rome. He's going to go on trial for his life. And we know he's going to be executed. And he says, starting at verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying, I was on the trial for my life. In other words, here's the hostility of the world. Here's the powers of the world. He's up before Rome, the greatest power in the world, and he's on trial for his life. And he says, everybody deserted me, but verse 17, the Lord stood by me. He was so comforted by that. It seems it didn't actually bother him all that much that all of his poor cowardly friends took off. He says it's okay. He says may it not be charged against them. He's not devastated by their desertion because the Lord was with him and strengthened him. And that is your promise. Jesus says in Matthew 28... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. I am with you always. That's your promise. If you say, how do I know? How can I be sure? Because most of us, quite frankly, have never really done anything like Paul did here. Few of us have put everything on the line in front of a hostile crowd, in front of a hostile world, for Jesus' sake. And here's the promise. You say, how can I be sure the Lord is going to stand by me and strengthen me? Well, I'll tell you how you can be sure. Because at the end of Jesus' life, when he was on trial for his life, and he was up there before the hostility of the world, and all of his friends deserted him and betrayed him and denied him and fled from him, and he was completely alone, what happened? Not even the Father was with him. Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly alone. He was experiencing the penalty that we deserve for our sins. He was being abandoned, but he paid that penalty so that when you believe in him, you will know that God loves you unconditionally. He is utterly alone before the world so that you will never, ever, ever, ever have to be. He was utterly alone so that when you believe in him, you know that whatever comes, he will be with me. He'll stand with me and strengthen me. And that's true if you're on trial for your life, for your faith, which maybe none of us have faced yet. But that's certainly true when you face death. When you face death and everyone's around your hospital bed, 
They can't come with you. But there is one who will take your hand and walk you through. The Lord stood by uh, me and strengthened me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's your promise. As we come to the table, brothers and sisters, I want you to know your pastors want to keep pointing you to this promise, to this reward. We want you to be wise to the lies of unbelief. And we want to tell you week in and week out, as best as we can, what God has to say in his word. And when Christ appears, we want you to love his appearing. And so we pray, God, do it. And he does it through means. He gives his word to his church. He gives us his word preached and heard. He gives us this table to remind us that Christ the word has indeed come and given his own body and blood for us to be a means of grace with the preaching of his word to keep us loyal to him and to each other as we eat and drink in faith. And it's time to come to him and to come to his table. But first I want you to take a moment to thank him for his promise to never leave you or forsake you, for his promise to be with you always, for his promise to stand by you and strengthen you, and for his promise to bring you safe into his heavenly kingdom. Do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we run away from people for fear they may hurt us. There are times when people run away from us because they fear we may hurt them. Oh Lord, forgive us for failing to relate well to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us the courage to not desert those who disappoint us. Give us the courage to be loyal to them as you are loyal to them. Father, we say we love your word, but we don't always live like we do. Help us to hear your word preached. Help us to align our lives with that word. Help us to be people who believe the promises that you will stand by us, that you will strengthen us, that you will bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. We know we can only do that through the merits of your Son, whose blood and righteousness grant us access to the throne of grace. So give us the faith to preach well, finish well, relate well, and to trust you well. All in the name of the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.